Good day. You're tuned into Free City Radio. This is the 30th edition of our podcast. Thank you for being with us. It is the 23rd of February. Uh, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph, here in Montreal. It's a snowy day, um, and uh, winter's been long with the pandemic, but it has been a pleasure to share these voices with you on this weekly podcast, Free City Radio. So thank you for uh, taking the time to listen, and I just encourage you to tell a friend um, if you like what you're hearing. Uh, this is um, an effort that I do to try to share different voices from social movements around the world and also artists. So thank you so much for um, taking the time to tune in. And uh, it is uh, Tuesday. Every Tuesday, I bring the weekly show to you. So thank you. Uh, today on the broadcast, I am going to be featuring uh, an interview with Cesar Jaramillo, uh, who is with Plowshares Project uh, here in Canada. Plowshares is an initiative that is trying to critique uh, militarism and war. Uh, the reference for Plowshares is basically a link to thinking about agriculture, thinking about uh, ways that social resources can be directed away from militarism and war, more towards um, resources that bring sustenance. So Plow is referencing agriculture. Uh, they want to push uh, government policy towards thinking about investing in healthcare and education, not in war and militarization. And um, this interview series that I've been working on is really trying to highlight voices like Cesar at Plowshares Project, who are thinking critically about Canadian foreign policy. Um, you know, so we've been looking at different issues, um, looking at the role of the Canadian government, uh, which has been facilitating um, the uh, push for Canadian military companies to have contracts, you know, with governments like the government of Saudi Arabia, the military of Saudi Arabia, which has been involved in systemic human rights abuses in Yemen, or um, the role of the Canadian government in facilitating uh, Canadian mining corporations, which have been uh, involved in you know, terrible environmental and human rights uh, disasters, especially in the Americas, but also globally. Um, so these interviews are trying to look critically at decisions of the Canadian government that allow for corporations, military corporations, mining corporations, to operate globally in ways that are very detrimental, very destructive, and very violent. Um, today, I spoke with Cesar from Plowshares. Within this context of this interview series I'm doing with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, but also uh, specifically about a very important treaty that came into effect in January, which is the Global Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This is a treaty that is trying to um, take action on pushing towards a world with um, no nuclear weapons, to push away from the military-industrial complex that uh, is driving militarization in this deadly form in nuclear weapons. And a global treaty took place uh, and it was ratified by a number of countries. Uh, it's through the United Nations, the Global Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. 
And that was just this January 2021 that it came into effect. And despite uh, the rhetoric of the current Liberal Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, around um, claiming uh, sort of the mantle of wanting to have a world free of nuclear weapons, the Liberal government did not support signing this international treaty. Uh, so there's a big space of contradiction there, and I wanted to uh, address that. And Cesar um, at Plowshares Project speaks about this very eloquently. So I wanted to share his perspective today on the podcast here on Free City Radio. Thanks for tuning in, for listening. This is the 30th show. So I'll just get right to it. This is the interview with Cesar Jaramillo from Plowshares Project here in Canada. So I'm Cesar Jaramillo. I'm the executive director at Project Plowshares. We're based in, in Waterloo, Ontario. And for the past 45 years, we were founded in 1976 by my predecessors. And for the past 45 years, we've been working uh, primarily on, on matters of, of arms control, disarmament, and international security. And uh, a fundamental question in our work it relates to Canada's role in the world. You know, how Canada, as a middle power, can exercise its, 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 uh, its weight, its, 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 diplomat its diplomatic uh, capacity, uh, its influence, uh, you know, in, in various multilateral forums, etc., cetera, uh, for better or worse. You know, we ask the question, what is the role that, uh, that Canada is playing these days? It's, it, is it really contributing to, to building a, a, a more just, a more secure, a, most, a more peaceful world? Or, or is it the contrary? You know, is it the opposite? Is it, is, it, is, it the, is it a matter of Canada actually being sometimes at least part of the problem rather than part of the solution? So, so yeah, so we assess these matters through, 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 uh, through research, through advocacy, through engagement with, with government officials in Ottawa, through engagement with other governments internationally. But yeah. uh, at the end of the day, we, we really ask the question about Canada's role in the world. Well, this brings up a, a very important treaty that uh, was uh, initiated globally in January of 2000, 2021, excuse me. Uh, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Arms, which I know that Plowshares had supported this treaty mm -hmm. um, and uh, other organizations. Um, so could you talk about the importance of this, this treaty and why you did support it? And also maybe the space between the rhetoric of the Liberal government, uh, because they do talk about wanting a world without nuclear weapons, but there is an international treaty uh, for the prohibition of nuclear weapons mm -hmm. that many countries have signed globally that Canada has not signed. Absolutely. I mean, and this is, this is a treaty that is good news for the international community, first of all. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, it came into force, like you said correctly, in just recently in January. But it's... it's uh, uh, to get to January, to that point when it entered into force, a lot of years of work have gone into this uh, into this effort. That Project Plowshares, we have supported the Treaty on the Prevention of Nuclear Weapons uh, from the start, since it was, since before it was negotiated, since it, since it was just a. Uh, an idea uh, from from progressive states and civil society groups in Canada and internationally, and basically the treaty uh, intends to fill a legal gap to address a legal anomaly 
whereby every other category of weapons of mass destruction had uh, already had an explicit prohibition under international law. But nuclear weapons, the most destructive of all, did not have an explicit prohibition. So to give you just a couple of examples, you know, there is, there is a chemical weapons convention. There's a biological weapons convention. There is a landmines treaty, which incidentally is very closely related to Canada and the Ottawa process from, from just over 20 years ago. But once again, nuclear weapons are the most devastating instruments of mass destruction ever conceived, and they, they, they lacked an explicit prohibition under international law. So a growing number of civil society uh, groups around the world, some champion states that cared about this issue a few years ago started saying, let's fix this. You know, why don't we, the, we rally the international community around this objective and try to negotiate a treaty to, to leave no ambiguity around the fact that nuclear weapons, their very possession is illegal. It, and, it's, it, and it's something that is going to strengthen international law. It's something that, that is going to pave the way for the, you know, towards their, their elimination. So that's in principle, you know, in, in very general terms, uh, the, what happened with the nuclear ban treaty. But when we started negotiating it, and I had the opportunity to attend the negotiations, and, 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 and it was driven to a large part, to a, to a large part by an by a, um, intentional emphasis on the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons, you know, and, and sort of reframing the narrative around nuclear weapons in such a way that the, that the impact of these weapons, the destruction that they cause on, on, on men, women, and children, on civilian lives and livelihoods, uh, on victims, not just of the weapons themselves, as in Hiroshima or Nagasaki, but also of, the, of, of nuclear weapons testing that, that, you know, that has happened since these weapons were used in, in, in combat um, just over 75 years ago, uh, played a very prominent role. You know, and turn this conversation really into a very visceral conversation about cancer, about burnt children, about, you know, uh, defects at birth, about multi-generational harm. And this helped move the needle, really. I mean, this, this very visceral uh, 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 sort of narrative uh, founded strongly on human security, on the protection of the, on the individual, which is, you know, uh, in my view and in the view of many others, is paramount and, in fact, is more important than even national security considerations. So the, so the treaty came about in, in that context, but from the early days, we started to notice that it wasn't. It was. It had a lot of support, but not universal support. And perhaps not surprisingly, states with nuclear weapons, you know, the, the states more uh, that would perhaps be most affected by a change in the status quo around nuclear weapons possession, were very uh, strongly opposed to the treaty. You know, and they were dismissive. They were. They were uh, behind the scenes, uh, sort of. Sort of. Uh, scheming to, to, to try to, to obfuscate the negotiations. They specifically called upon their allies to boycott the negotiations and to vote against any resolution at the United Nations that was related to the treaty. And Canada is one of those allies of nuclear weapon states, primarily through its membership in NATO. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, has both nuclear weapon states, states that possess nuclear weapons, and non-nuclear weapon states like Canada that do not possess nuclear weapons. However, countries like Canada, despite not possessing nuclear weapons, have actually aligned themselves with the countries that have nuclear weapons and not with the growing majority in the international community that, that is demanding concrete 
progress towards abolition. So Canadian policies, doctrines, and actions are very regrettably more aligned with those of the United States, for example, and its NATO partners than with Austria, uh, than with Mexico, than with Costa Rica, than with uh, South Africa, and just a, a growing number of countries from around the world that have said, you know, enough is enough. You know, we have we have had uh, nuclear weapons for more than seven decades, and it's 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 time to get rid of this existential threat. So Canada has been, uh, from that perspective, uh, I would say, uh, and once again, very regrettably, more part of the problem than part of the solution of of the in terms of the pursuit of nuclear weapons free world. And oh, Canada, just, yeah, just to Go underline. The fact that uh, the liberal government in power right now in Canada has talked about being fully supportive of a world without nuclear weapons. Uh, Justin Trudeau has been explicit in saying this publicly. Yes. Minister, um, and uh, has talked about the danger of nuclear arms. Um, so can you talk about how that distance between uh, the language of the Canadian government around this critically important issue for all of humanity um, uh, and the actions of the government differ uh, because this international treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons is obviously a huge step forward. And as you mentioned, and thank you for mentioning that, this is something that didn't happen out of the blue. It was uh, uh, building for many years. Uh, many organizations internationally had supported this process. Um, and some governments, uh, which you also mentioned. Um, so how, how does that distance square up between the rhetoric of the government and the actions? And how does that in general, not just on the prohibition treaty around nuclear weapons, speak to the contradictions around the discourse of Canadian foreign policy and the actions? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think contradiction is, is, is the operative word here because there is a very clear contradiction and there is a, there is a gap, as you said, this distance between the rhetoric and the action is, it has become just too, too obvious to, to, to deny. You know, there is a clear gap between what the government says and what the government does. And, and, and this particular government actually, I, I think, is quite clever when it comes to PR and when it comes to saying the right things and, to, and, and when it comes to, to expressing support for, for lofty objectives, so, you know, that no one would argue against. But the actions tell a very different story. And I think that's where it becomes uh, really problematic. So let's take it by parts. First of all, the fact alone that the government says that it supports a world without nuclear weapons, you know, it's, it needs to be taken with a grain of salt. I, I think that virtually every government in the world, including those that possess nuclear weapons, including those that have used nuclear weapons, including those that have tested nuclear weapons, including those where, where there's a possibility of conflict involving nuclear weapons, tend to say that they support a world without nuclear weapons. You know, you won't really find a lot of evidence of governments saying that they that they want a nuclear catastrophe, that they want nuclear annihilation, that they want nuclear winter. So the fact alone that they say they support this this objective is not really evidence of of actual support. You know, this is like the bare minimum. This is it'd be odd to say that they were not supportive of that goal. But when Canada says it, I think it can only be taken as a distant ethereal objective. 
because when it comes to its concrete actions, it's a, it's actually pushing in the complete in in a completely different direction. Um, so Canada, Canada, if it meant this this purported support for nuclear weapons, you know, it would it would for one thing join the majority of the international community that that. Um, that uh, that have that have joined the, the the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons by by acceding to it, it would also initiate a dialogue within NATO within the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to formulate security arrangements that do not rely on the use of these instruments of mass destruction. That that no one denies that there is a need for security arrangements, and no one denies that there is a need for strategic stability, including middle powers, including major powers, etc. What we're saying is take nuclear weapons out of the equation. You know, they're so destructive that they need to be taken out of the equation. And in, 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 in lieu of that nuclear sort of deterrence, uh, so-called nuclear deterrence, Canada is well positioned to initiate a dialogue at various important forums where, it, where it's a member uh, on, on new security arrangements that once again do not rely on nuclear weapons. But we're, we, we seem to be far from there. And I think the rhetoric of the Liberal government uh, uh, it may, be, may sound positive, but the actions are not so different from, from their predecessors, you know, the conservative governments. When Canada came to power, when this particular government came to power, there was a lot of talk of change, you know, that change was in the making, that change was happening, that there was a big change, you know, in, in the way of doing things compared to the to their the, under Harper under under the previous uh, conservative government, but the fact of the matter is that when it comes to foreign policy, specifically foreign policy related to arms control and disarmament, uh, there has been very little change. I think the the the, the, the Canada's position vis-a-vis -vis nuclear disarmament is very similar under the, uh, under the Liberals uh, than under the Conservatives. Canada was uh, just to mention another uh, foreign policy related file. You know, arms exports. Uh, you know, to 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 shady regimes are have continued under the Liberals just as they were happening under the Conservatives. So this notion, this, just to to illustrate the fact that this notion of change. With this government didn't really materialize when it when it comes to foreign policy and when it comes to international security policy and 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 the international community has taken notice i mean it's not just civil society activists calling out the government i think anyone who follows these multilateral processes including related to the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons would would uh, would uh, place canada uh, among the problematic states and not among those that are helping out, you know, unlock this file, this thorny file of, of nuclear disarmament. And it's a shame because it's a wasted opportunity. And Canada really has, you know, some, some muscle, some, some credibility as, as an honest broker, these things, you know, but, uh, but I think these are, these, these assumptions on Canada's role are, are sort of based on past glories and don't really align with the realities today where Canada is, is once again a, a hurdle to, to progress rather than, than a facilitator. Uh, thank you so much for outlining that. And, you know, I would just mention that, you know, one of the issues you highlighted was the arms exports to Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, not Saudi Arabia specifically, but just underlining the fact that the Liberal government did uh, approve uh, reapprove after review the arms exports to Saudi Arabia. So this sort of ties into the work at Plowshares. So yes. um, could you talk a bit and explain, please, um, what Plowshares is and how it works and how it relates to these questions? 
Absolutely. So we track Canadian arms exports and we, do, and we follow the international trade and conventional weapons in general. And the thing to know, first of all, about arms exports is that it's a very lucrative business. You know, there's a, there's a constant supply and there's a constant demand and, and, it's, and it's valued in, in, in tens of billions of dollars and, 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 um, and, and by some estimates, more than $100 billion every single year. So from a business perspective, you know, what's not to like, you know, it's a lucrative business and there's, there's countries like Canada that are willing to supply and there's, there's conflict zones around the world that are demanding, demanding weaponry all the time. So, you know, uh, it seems like a pretty solid business. The problem from a human rights perspective is that a significant proportion of, of these exports are actually misused. You know, and, and a significant proportion of these experts go to enable the violation of human rights. They go to sustain autocratic regimes. They go to exacerbate armed conflict. And Canada is, uh, you know, it's Canada is among those that, that, that is supplying weapons that are being misused and are among those that are supplying weapons when the risks of, of misuse are clear and present and undeniable. And despite this, Canada proceeds exporting weapons to countries such as Saudi Arabia. Now, it's not Saudi Arabia, it's not, uh, and there, there's other cases, but there's a multi-billion dollar uh, deal right now in place that, is, that has continued despite any number of red flags having been, been raised around this, this issue. Yeah. And it's not simply the opinion of Project Plowshares that Saudi Arabia is, is, is a problematic recipient. Every authoritative organization in the world that tracks human rights consistently places Saudi Arabia at the very bottom of any ranking when it comes to human rights. Uh, there is one called Freedom House uh, based in, in, in the U.S. in Washington, D.C. that has a special category called the worst of the worst. And sure enough, consistently, Saudi Arabia is at the bottom of the worst of the worst in the world. So it's an irredeemable, uh, uh, you know, a sort of recipient. And it begs the question, if a country with Saudi Arabia's abysmal human rights record is eligible to receive Canadian-made military exports, who would not be? Because they set the bar impossibly low. You know, they are violators within their borders. They, they violate the, the, of, of Shia minorities, the, of, of women, of, you know, they have harsh sentences for nonviolent offenses, all sorts of, of well-documented pattern of, of human rights violations, but also beyond their borders. In neighboring Yemen, for example, uh, they are the chief instigator of what is now called the worst humanitarian crisis of our time. And they, 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 ha they are leading a military intervention. And there have been reports by authoritative uh, uh, groups, uh, or including from, from the United Nations Human Rights Council uh, and a group of eminent experts on Yemen that have uh, squarely placed the blame on countries like Canada and the United Kingdom and the United States and others for facilitating the, pro uh, the, the conflict. So Canada has washed its hands and said, that, well, this government, I mean, there's been a, a bit of a blame game because the current government says that the deal was negotiated initially by sure. the previous government. Sure. But, uh, but, but in reality, the key element for these sorts of deals to proceed, I don't want to get too technical, but the key element is something called an export permit. And I think it's important to understand that every single export yep. permit related to this deal has been approved under this government under the under yes. the liberal government so so they have to own this own this and um and and, and yeah and i think canadian citizens and, and and people here in in the country need to understand that that our country is not just 
facilitator, but given the the, the 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 evidence about the risk of misuse in Saudi Arabia and beyond its borders, I think one can start talking about Canadian complicity in some of the in some of the the, the you know the, these instances of misuse in Saudi Arabia and in Yemen, because we know well what is happening, and despite that risk, we are exporting. So there is a situation of willful blindness here, uh, uh, for sure. So the name of your organization, uh, Plowshares, um, uh, if you could just explain a bit sure. how it works, because I think it's a really interesting project that's existed for a long time. So shares, of course, speaks to right. uh, financial um, sort of shares that people would have within your organization. Um, could you just very quickly explain for people who aren't familiar with Plowshares what it Absolutely. is? Absolutely. So this is, I mean, as I said, uh, you know, we were founded 45 years ago by, by two, two well-known uh, peace activists in Canada, Ernie Regeer, who's still uh, based here in Waterloo, and Marie Thompson, who has since uh, passed away. And uh, the name came actually from a biblical uh, reference. There's a biblical reference that speaks of beating swords into plowshares. And this is a well-known metaphor for for uh, a better allocation of resources for, you know, so going from swords, you know, militarism, uh, weaponry, all of these things to plowshares, agriculture, you know, and the image that it, that evokes is it speaks to what we do, you know, sort of sort of uh, uh, having a better priorities, having uh, having better allocation of resources, moving away from 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 the sort of almost instinctive uh, inclination to resort to military solutions for every conceivable problem, and and, and rather you know try to invest those resources in dipl in diplomacy and in 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 development and in in, uh, in, in in yeah in, in other more peaceful ventures, and we have all of our programs related to, in one way or another to disarmament and, and and arms control. So we we follow nuclear disarmament, we follow the the arms trade. We're, we're, we follow uh, emerging military technologies, sort of the future of warfare, what that might look like and what regulations might be in place. So, so, so we follow, for instance, the security of outer space systems and whether that can become a, a, an arena for military confrontation. Sure, we follow sure. uh, artificial intelligence and how that is, that is fueling new military uh, um, uh, sort of innovations and, sure. and, and this prospect of killer robots or, or, or lethal autonomous weapon systems that are maybe around the corner, depending on, on, on how you formulate it. So, so in general, yeah, we, we, we believe, we believe uh, strongly in norms, in the power of norms. And, and how we can uh, we can shape norms and uh, you know at the at the domestic at, at the international level and how they the, those can constitute sort of effective constraints uh, on governments uh, through regulations and importantly we believe in the power of advocacy from civil society you know from everyday individuals like you and me and your listeners and you know people who care enough about an issue. To, to act and, and you know, and even the word activist, which I'm sure everybody has heard, uh, there's no mystery there. You know, an activist is so, simply somebody who acts, somebody who cares about, about an issue to take action. And we have seen, uh, there's many problems still to be solved, but there's also some good news stories and some small victories along the way. So we have seen that, that when people uh, are well-informed 
and care about the issue and take action, they can indeed shape some of the norms. They can indeed influence decision makers, whether in Ottawa or at the United Nations in New York or Vienna sure. or Geneva. And there is such a thing as, as people power, not to sound too esoteric, but there is such a thing as influence. I can the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, which I'm a proud member of and which, which was instrumental to the negotiation of the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, I think is a prime example of this. You know, this is a civil society at its best right, from, you know, people from, from, from Africa and from Europe and from Latin, Latin America and North America and Asia and everywhere, all with this, with this preoccupation around nuclear weapons coming together to, you know, to push for the, for the, for the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons to be negotiated to, and now that it, since it has been negotiated to push for more and more countries to join it and to come in. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's really a, a story about the, you know, people not resting on their laurels, people not staying home, you know, sort of uh, whining and complaining and doing nothing about it, but, but, but quite the contrary, you know, people sure. actually taking action, going where the action is, putting on our, our suits and ties and, and, or whatever you care to, however you care to dress and going to the UN and speaking their language and learning their methods and going there and engaging and, and, and trying, to really, trying to really change reality. And that is central for, for, for not just for Project Plowshares, but I believe for, for civil society groups more generally. The fact that, um, and this may really sound grandiose or, or ambitious, but we want to change the world. I mean, we don't just want to describe it. We don't just want to, and this may be a difference with perhaps academia or other sectors that, that, that do research on these files. We don't just want to say, the U.S. has this many nuclear weapons and Russia has this many nuclear weapons and France and, 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 and China and the United Kingdom, period. Uh, we do that, but we also say, what are we going to do about it? Got it? You know, it's not just about being descriptive. It's about being revolutionary, in a, you know, in a positive sense. How are we going to change the world? And, and I think in our case, the driver really is to reduce human suffering. It's not to be, a, you know, to be a, to throw a wrench at the government or to, to score a point for, for, you know, for the sake of scoring a point. Really, it's about reducing human suffering because we believe there are many instances of preventable human suffering that are occurring and, or threats to, uh, like, you know, the lingering threat of nuclear weapons. And, you know, we can't just do nothing about it. So we try yeah. to affect change in, 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 yeah, in various ways. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing a bit about your work uh, at Plowshares uh, Project, but also to speak about these key issues of arms exports from Canada uh, to governments that violate human rights and the importance of the global treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. So thank you so much for, for speaking to us today uh, for this series of interviews uh, that I've been working on uh, in collaboration with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Estefan. Pleasure to be with you. That was an interview with Cesar Jaramillo from Plowshares Project uh, here in Canada. They're based in Waterloo in Ontario. Uh, this is a very important organization that has been supporting uh, the global uh, treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons and really pushing uh, Canada away from uh, a foreign policy defined by militarism, defined by war, pushing towards 
the possibility of having a foreign policy that is rooted in a respect for international law and human rights. And specifically, we were talking about the International Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that social movements from around the world pushed for. Um, so I thought it would be uh, important to highlight this voice because I think it's a very important treaty. And the fact that Canada has not supported this treaty is something to look at very critically. So this is uh, another uh, interview within a series that I'm doing in collaboration with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. So thanks for tuning in for that. This is Free City Radio, the 30th edition. I'm your host in Montreal, uh, Stefan Christophe. Um, thanks for being with us. It is the 23rd of February. Up next, I wanted to share a track by the great Lonnie Liston-Smith. Uh, he had a band called the Cosmic Echoes. And this tract is called Egypt. Thank you. 
That was Lonnie Liston-Smith with the track Egypt, a great artist, um, recorded that in the early 1970s, I believe. And this is Free City Radio. Thanks for listening. This is the 30th edition. It is the 23rd of February. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Just a quick note, uh, if you like what you're hearing on the podcast, I really encourage you to uh, let your friends know about us, uh, to encourage them to subscribe. Uh, You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Please, if you do like what you're hearing, leave a review. It really helps. Thank you. I'm here in Montreal. It's winter, um, and I wanted to share another conversation I had with you today. This is uh, an interview um, that I did with Ahmed Jaradat, uh, who is with the Alternative Information Center. That is a joint uh, Israeli and Palestinian media organization. I spoke with Ahmed, uh, who was in the occupied West Bank in Palestine, and uh, he was um, uh, detailing the ways that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted uh, the Palestinian people. Um, There's been a lot of celebration in the mainstream media around uh, the rollout of vaccination in Israel, and I thought it would be really important to have uh, another example of the ways that COVID-19 has first impacted uh, occupied Palestine, which of course uh, is controlled uh, militarily, um, physically, financially, largely by the Israeli state. Um, And also to think about the fact that uh, Israel has not uh, taken any moves uh, to vaccinate the Palestinian people. Um, This is, of course, the responsibility of the occupying power. Uh, The Geneva Convention, uh, established after World War II, uh, identifies quite clearly in international law the responsibilities of the occupying power in regards to um, the rights of the occupied people, in this case, the Palestinians. So I thought it'd be important to speak with Ahmed Jaradat about um, the situation on the ground in the occupied territories and to highlight... um, what it looks like for the Palestinian people and the ways that um, they are resisting, but also facing the danger of COVID-19. So here's our conversation on Free City Radio. I reached Ahmed Jaradat in occupied Palestine. During the months from the beginning of the pandemic, we're facing a lot of uh, problems, and this is related to the special uh, situation in Palestine. First of all, we have been the state, national state that have full sovereignty on all Palestine or West Bank. According to us, the agreement, West Bank is divided into three into three areas, A, B, C. A, the central of the cities that <coughs> full control was given to the Palestinian Authority according to Oslo agreements. Uh, B areas, the big towns, like what the town I'm living in, Security is under the Israeli control, while the services and the other aspects of life was given to Palestinian Authority to rule it or to do it. C area or areas, which is the biggest, and 61% of those bank C area, this small city, small villages, etc., still under the Israeli full control, security and uh, everything. So if the people want to build even one room or to operate at home, they need the permission from the Israeli civil administration. Just want to say, and since 2002, after the uh, recreation of the cities, yani, during the Second Intifada, 
on the ground, there is no meaning for uh, the reality said, no, no differences between BC area because there's really uh, troops and this soldiers can move everywhere, arrest the people, etc. Uh, regarding to the, our issue, we have in the PA, Palestinian Authority, we have health ministry like education ministry, etc. But Israel controlled the, all the passages for West Bank to the other uh, world, for example. So anything we need to export or to import, we need the permission from the Israelis to do that, which is actually uh, not easy for, for the Palestinian to do. So even if you are to, <clears throat> to buy any kind of medicines from any country, we need a permission from the Israelis and sh it should go, come through the Israelis' side, Israelis sides. Uh, <clears throat> the Palestinian Authority uh, not prepared itself because of this situation to face this, the pandemic. For example, we have no special hospitals for that. We have some clinics in Hebron, we have two in Ramallah, etc. but could not, yani, uh, uh, could not uh, meet the numbers of the cases. So the, uh, the case is bigger than this uh, to host them or to to put them under the health full control. This is one we are we faced, and there is a lot of articles and etc. Uh, published regarding to this issue. This is one. Second, the movement between the cities is under the Israeli control. So we have passages already before yani, and uh, checkpoints. So the movement between the cities is not easy. It's yes. not easy to do. Yes. Yes. The third one, which is important in my opinion, the Palestinian Authority could not yani, do it role to control the movement of the people because PA, PA have no uh, sovereignty or rule in sea area. So, so just if, when they are said uh, close the areas uh, during the pandemic, they close the center of the cities. This is the area that they can do. But others... They could not because it is under the Israeli. And when they stopped what they call the security coordination, they stopped for some months. At that time, the Palestinian police or the Palestinian authority could not move any, any way, anywhere at, at all, which is so the people depend on their self and their knowledge and their uh, wills to, to deal with the, with the pandemic. Uh, the, the issue of the prisoners, this is a big issue during the pandemic. And there is a lot of articles and published around that, that they really didn't give interest for the prisoners inside the prison. And they keep them in crowded areas. And sometimes they, they, we have a lot of cases that they didn't treat them, just they isolated them in one room. Sure. And we so have just, a lot of... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, well, just, uh, just to... Of, uh, Clarify. I would like to talk about prisoners, but I, I just want to clarify that you're you're Ahmed talking that area A, B, and C. In fact, they are areas that, despite the Oslo Accords, um, mm -hmm. in the contemporary sense, in the current sense, in occupied Palestine, mm -hmm. there is no difference in terms of Israeli military control. And in okay. fact, in the context of the pandemic given the limited powers of the Palestinian Authority, there was very little that uh, the health ministry could do uh, to uh, address the systemic issues. Uh, I, I would just underline here that the border 
um, into Palestine and out of Palestine and any access to medical equipment, I understand that the border is completely controlled by Israeli authorities, correct? Yeah, of course. This is, uh, this is well known. And uh, this is well known. And not only in West Bank, but also in Gaza. And because most of the passages that uh, leading to Gaza is under the Israeli control, even Rafah, which is, you know, there is what they call the International Committee uh, doing it. Uh, one important point um, uh, I should raise during for five, six, seven months, the Palestinians have no salaries. And from July to December. Why? Because uh, when the Palestinian Authority stopped the security coordination, the Israelis stopped to transfer the money of the Palestinians that come from the taxation, that what we called Maqasa, for the Palestinian Authority. So the Palestinian Authority didn't give no money, they didn't give salaries for the people. So they are suffering during this time, during the pandemic, and they have no money. Uh, later, when the Palestinians renewed, the security coordination, the, the money are coming. But we, fa- yani we face really seven months difficult, difficult, difficult for the people at the time that there is no work. And uh, even the work in Israel was limited uh, hugely. Where the workers, we have around 150,000 of workers go from daily, go from West Bank to Israel. And this is affected negatively because Israel uh, closed uh, many, many weeks from week to week to us. So the people stay dead without salaries, which is yani, yani doubled, if I am saying, doubled the, cri- the crisis on the people to mainly the, yes. uh, the fathers, the mothers to meet the, uh, the needs of, uh, of the people. Now, recently, we are facing a real problem because the Israel, Israel said the responsibility of the of giving uh, uh, vaccine to the Palestinians is the responsibility of the uh, this is the responsibility of the Palestinian Authority. Yes. While so in this in this way, the Israeli ignored or yani, uh, violated its responsibility as occupier power. At least in C area and P area. And then a few days ago, the health minister of Israel said a strange, a strange words. And officially he said the responsibility for uh, giving vaccines to the Palestinian against the pandemic in Palestine, this is the Palestinian Authority. It's not Israel's one. And the Palestinian Authority need to, to, to buy this or to bring this. And the Israeli conditions is, uh, and limitations not allow for them to do that. The uh, issue that you raised, Ahmed, about prisoners. So I would like to address that quickly. Um, you talked about the situation within the jails. Uh, so I'll just underline uh, that um, there are many um, hundreds of Palestinians in jail without trial. Um, there's a process called 5,000, 5,000, 5,000 prisoners. We have 5,000 now. And administrative detention. There's many uh, people also being held without any process. So um, thank you for, for, for highlighting that uh, um, very huge number of prisoners, Ahmed, uh, 5,000 people jailed, uh, 
in prison and then and then also many held in administrative detention i know on the ground Four, there's 400 400, 400. I'm great 40 40 women well not great it's actually very bad so so um thank you for sharing the information though um so can you highlight with us the situation then why the issue of the mass incarceration of palestinians the mass jailing of palestinians how that is important in general but also why it's important to think about that in terms of the pandemic the prisoners, you mean? Yes. First of all, regarding, and if we are going to compare the number of the Palestinian population and the number of the, of the prisoners, is huge. We are speaking about 3 million of Palestinians back in East Jerusalem. At the same time, we all, all the time, we have 5,000. 400 administrative detention. Administrative detention is with, without uh, charge, without uh, evidences, and for six months, and it's renewed itself automatically if there is no uh, decision to release. We have 350 children under 18 years, and we have 40 women in. And so, yani, it, is, uh, it, it is not and in each city or in each village or in each section, there is a prisoner's from in the prison. So this, the prisoner's issue is yani, related to all the people. It's not only yeah. a political issue, but it's a social issue, a family yeah. issue, a human being issue direct to the, to the people. And at the, at the time that there is, there is no real health uh, services inside the prison. Yeah. And yeah. this is usual. And we have a lot of people who have died in the prison. Months ago, we have two or three were died in the, in the prison because of the shortage of the health services that was given to, the, to them in, in the prison. And that the, uh, the changing their places from this prison or not. And uh, the crowded uh, rooms of the prisoners and some of them in the tents, some of them in military stations like Faratzion here between Beit Laham and Hebron. This is not only prison, it's not a prison, it's a, a military station. They stop the people for one month, 20 days, for two, two weeks. In a very difficult circumstances and some of areas, some of prisoners, they bring the Palestinians, prisoners who are political prisoners, but they didn't uh, recognize this, that those are political. And they put them with uh, criminals, Israelis criminals. Uh, in, 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 in many cases, which is yani, made their life in very, very threatened uh, situation. And the isolation, for example, isolated prisoners from this area to that area, not because of the pandemic. The isolation, isolation policy is a historical issue when they want to punish any prisoner or group of prisoners. They isolated them months and they didn't, yes. yani, they stopped the connection between them yes. and the others. Mm -hmm. family, family visits. Yani, uh, months ago, the, pe the people could not go to do the family visit for the, for the prisoners. More than this, yani, who can ap made application to visit? Just the father, the mother, the wife, and the son and the daughter. So suppose if we have a prisoner that his mother or uh, father died, so no one visit him. And to do this, you, you need to go to the Red Crescent and do application. And the application go to the Israeli authority and they come back if they agree or not uh, for, for the family business. So this is uh, a, a very, very difficult process. The person put himself in 
Yes. The business of the lawyers also, uh, many times يعني, the, it is the lawyer need يعني, when he do application to visit his, uh, the prisoner who, who represented, he need يعني, weeks to get this or days to get this uh, permission. And they, of course, they claim this for security reasons and still he, the prisoner is under uh, يعني, interrogation, he's in interrogation uh, stage. So the prisoner, prisoner position in Palestine, this is, يعني historically, uh, my dear, historically 70% of the Palestinians went to the prison. If you, this is a statistics. You, do, you could not find any family that there is no people went to the prison from. More than this, we have a lot of the prisoners who's يعني, close to 40 years in the prison. 40 years. Like Ahmed Yunus and his, his brother, like uh, Nal Barghouti, etc. We have many. At the time, and he is right, when the world do a very big issue for Nelson Mandela after he spent uh, 28 years, and he is a great man, of course, a great, great man. While we have uh, dozens who are close to 40 years, 40 years, but the international community, I meant here by international community, the governments, the United Nations uh, systems, they didn't uh, do anything for those people who spent 40 years. Yeah, know, this is. That was a conversation with Ahmed Jardat, uh, who is a Palestinian uh, media activist. He works with the Alternative Information Center. That's a joint initiative uh, between Palestinian and Israeli journalists, independent journalists, to share and convey uh, information about what's happening in the occupied territories of Palestine. Um, I thought it was important to highlight uh, the realities of the pandemic in occupied Palestine, especially given that the mainstream media, major media, uh, CNN, for example, um, the BBC, has been quite celebratory of the vaccination program in is- inside Israel. But what that vaccination program excludes um, is the people that Israel occupies. So this is the Palestinian people in the West Bank and in Gaza. So I wanted to highlight Ahmed's voice uh, to give a critical perspective on what the pandemic looks like in occupied Palestine. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Stefan Christoph here in Montreal. This is the 30th edition of uh, Free City Radio podcast. I uh, share a new episode with you every Tuesday. Thanks for being here and for listening. Um, I'll be back next week. If you want to reach me about anything, I'm at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And um, please tell a friend about the podcast. You can subscribe through Apple Podcasts. Leave a rating if you already have. It really helps. Um, you know, maybe a few people who wouldn't hear these ideas, these critiques that are included on this podcast would be reached. So that would be really cool. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you every week. I'm Stefan Christoph, and I wanted to go out with a piece of music. This is a piece by Ba Relev, uh, which is an ensemble that uh, some musicians, both on the West Coast in the U.S. and here in Montreal, a friend of mine, David Mitchell, works on. Uh, So this is one of their tracks, Ba Relev, uh, here on Free City Radio. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 